You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Welcome to episode 61 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I am starting the five-part storyline, The Death of Joe Hallen, which kicks off in issue number 54 of the comic. There's no definite month and year for this issue, but last we saw Joe Hallen in an issue that was dated April 1970, and in that issue, Hallen mentioned that he was short. So I've taken a look at May 1970, and I chose Turn Back the Hands of Time by Tyrone Davis, a song that was number one on the R&B charts and peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100. Issue number 54 came out on January 29th, 1991, and is cover dated March 1991. That information comes, of course, from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Our story, Bring It On Home to Me, was written by Chuck Dixon. Breakdowns were by Wayne Van Zant. Finishes were by Tony Z. Zaniga. Letters and Colors by Phil Felix. Don Daly was your editor, and Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. There's a quote on the title page, which is from the book of Job, chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. My kinsfolk has failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house count me as a stranger. We open in the Nam, where four guys are sitting around waiting for their ride back to the States and talking about what they're most looking forward to when they get home. One's looking forward to a glass of milk and a steak dinner, another wants a blonde, and another is looking forward to seeing his wife and daughter, and Joe Hallen says, I can't wait to see my mama. Sometime later at LAX, a man asks Hallen if he's on military standby for BWI, and he says yes, admitting that he dozed off. The man who works at the airline tells him that his flight got bumped up, Hallen, who's a little out of it, thanks him, and as he's walking away with his ticket, the counter guys talk about how he might have been doped up and come back as a junkie, like so many other vets. Joe arrives in Baltimore, in the Hampton section, which isn't very far from the Pimlico racetrack, and runs into Leonard, an old guy from the neighborhood who works at the local garage. They say their hellos, and then Leonard heads off to work. Joe enters his house and sees a guy he doesn't know named Tremaine, who is apparently the live-in boyfriend of his sister, Londra. Joe doesn't think very much of that and throws Tremaine down the stairs and kicks him out the door. Londra's pissed off and yells that he can't just come in and start bossing her around. Joe blows her off and heads upstairs to see his mother, who's glad to see him, but she's tired. He promises he's there to help and that he'll take them to the movies later on. When he gets back downstairs, Joe asks Londra where their brother Calvin is, and she says he hasn't been back since going out the previous night. Joe begins giving her grief about how she and Calvin haven't been a help at all to their mother, and Londra retorts that Joe ran off to play soldier. Calvin comes home. Joe greets him, wanting to know where Calvin has been, angry that he left and went out all night because he's supposed to be the man of the house and shouldn't be going out with his friends and leaving his mother alone. He grabs Calvin by the shirt and then puts him down, deciding to head out. When he heads outside, he sees some kids 
trying to see if they have enough money to pay the ice cream man and offers to pay for it. As he's getting a bill out of his wallet, two guys ask him if that's the money he got from killing babies, and then they accuse him of selling out and fighting the white man's war, saying he's a traitor to the cause. Joe grabs the guy's hand and bends the guy's fingers back, hurting him. The guys walk off, and Joe asks, the kids ask Joe if he really was in Vietnam. Then, one asks if, he kills any ba- if he's killed any babies. Joe says, pay for the ice cream, kids, handed her a bill, and walks off. Joe then goes off to look for a job. He tries first a fast food place, but he gets offended when the manager suggests that one day he'll be manager of a burger town. The manager throws him out, and then Joe heads to a local bar where he sees Leonard. Leonard asks what he's got, what's got him down, and Joe complains about not being able to find the job at all, and how he realizes that things are a lot different at home than when he thought they would be in the army. He thanks Leonard for listening to him and looks over to see that Leonard has passed out drunk on the bar. He helps Leonard out, and he heads home, where Calvin is watching TV, and Landra, who has been ushering Tremaine out the door so Joe can't spot him, tells him that their mother left, and Joe can take them to the movies. They head out to the movies, and Calvin asks Joe if he doesn't mind if he doesn't sit with them. Joe's disappointed, and then Landra says it's because he doesn't want his friends to see him because they said Joe's an Uncle Tom because he signed up. Joe wants to know if it's true, and Calvin runs away. A few days later... Joe heads to the garage where Leonard works and the boss says he can only use him part-time and he'll start, start him off sweeping the floors. Joe accepts the job and the boss says that one day he might even get Leonard's job. Joe looks at Leonard and he's sad. He leaves and heads home where he walks in on Landra and Tremaine and gives Tremaine the same greeting he gave him before. Landra tries to stop him. Joe pushes him aside and then Mama comes down and slaps Joe, telling him to stop roughing up Tremaine and apologize. Our next page puts us in the Republic of Vietnam, north of Bien Hoa, in the curve of the Parrot's Beak. There is a unit of soldiers that has just gotten another assignment to head out the next day. They're also getting a new guy. He approaches them, and he says his name is Joe Hallen. I'm going to start with the cover, which is by Andy Kubert. Uh, it shows Joe walking toward us with the city in the background. The death of Joe Hallen is on the cover of the, uh, is over the book's title, and part one of five is written on dog tags hanging from the top of the cover. There's, the only, there's only the Marvel Comics logo and the price issue number in the upper left-hand corner, so they definitely did what they could make to do uh, to make the storyline feel special. It's actually a really good cover. Uh, you get the feeling that there's something heavy about the issue. It'll be dealing with something we haven't seen. As I mentioned in a previous episode, Joe Hallen shows up earlier in one of the Chuck Dixon written issues, and knowing that the storyline was coming, I thought that was a pretty smart idea. Although, and this is me just nitpicking for a moment, it would have been better had Hallen been in the book for a few more issues just to have the storyline so it could have a little more impact down the line. But then again, there were a lot of personnel changes going on. You had the Punisher thing, so it's kind of a nitpick anyway. So it's something you probably would ignore as it is. Uh, we haven't seen a ton of the home front in this series, though. There have been a couple of Ed Marks stories, as well as that story about Pig's brother being in Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention, but... That's really about it. So not only is this a welcome change from our usual action in Vietnam, it's also a look at a black soldier coming home to the city. And the city in question mentioned is Baltimore. Neighborhood is actually one I've been to. I'm a little familiar with it. Um, Hampton is located just west of John Hopkins University, and it's about a mile or so south of Loyola University, Maryland. This is where I attended college back in the late 90s. Well, back then it was Loyola College in Maryland. 
the neighborhood back when I was in school was a pretty good neighborhood, but uh, doing a little digging was some pretty through some pretty bad times in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, which is the case for quite a bit of Baltimore at the time and quite a number of cities throughout the country. What I like here is how Dixon writes Joe as a guy with a bit of a short fuse, but also one who is frustrated because he expected a little more out of coming home, and he's not seeing that. When Joe goes to see if he can get a job at the fast food place, he's simply looking for a job, but he hasn't had much time to think about what he's going to do beyond that. And the manager says, well, change your attitude if you ever want to be manager, and that's what sets Joe off. At a glance, it seems like Joe has a, short, uh, has a short fuse or a bit of an entitlement complex, actually. But when you look at the scene and a lot of what happens in this issue, it's, it seems more like culture shock. The guy's been gone for a little over a year and probably thought things would be more promising after he left the Marines. After all, you have an entire generation before him who went off to war and came back, and they were able to live the American dream as a result. Of course, what he's discovering is what so many others did. That's not as simple this time around and so much is against him and you can see that in the scene where even his mother gets upset with him over the way he is treating his sister and her boyfriend because joe essentially he just walked back into the house and threw his weight around the look on his face when he when she says are you going to apologize joseph is both anger and frustration and Van Santen's Dizaniga draw him leaving the house in the next panel from far away and then we then we cut to vietnam and we get the sense that he's returned because he's realized that he just doesn't know anything else or doesn't feel like he fits in anywhere else. It's a good first part to the story because it doesn't go where you might think it will. Dixon sets up Joe Hallen as this sort of lost guy. And on some level, you expect this to be about him getting further lost, getting into drugs, or maybe you're committing some sort of crime. But then we get a story that will involve him going back to the NAM. And well, that's not as predictable as it seemed. I don't know if Joe is going to die when he's back in Vietnam or if he'll come home again or something else will happen. And all around, it's a good start to a multi-part storyline since we haven't seen something like this in the book very much. It's a much welcome novelty. Incoming this month. Uh, there are one, two, three letters, mostly about the Punisher issues. Uh, one person, David J. Mitchell, was a PFC in the Army. He said he liked the way he integrated Frank Castle into the story. He says, uh, but the Marines' top sniper in the Vietnam was Sergeant Carlos Hatchcock with 93 confirmed kills. On page 7, issue 52, you stated that that big stone-jawed sniper over there is the best shot in the armed services. Uh, as much as I like the Punisher, he still ranks number two. Just keeping you informed, they say you're absolutely correct. See the next letter. And the next letter says, congratulations, hitting issue 50. You have a great comic, great, gritty and realistic. I think 52 is the best issue in a long time. The others were wonderful, too. I was skeptical when I first heard the Punisher was going to be in the NOM, but not anymore. I noticed a lot of similarities between NOM 52 and the book Marine Sniper. Did Mr. Salak get any inspiration for this story from that book? Seth Bedwell of Virginia Beach, Virginia. He did indeed, Seth. NOMs number 52 and number 53 were in large part based on a real-life American hero, expert rifleman, and NOM veteran Carlos Hatchcock. Those interested in the modern art and science of sniping in general, or in the exports of Super Sniper Hatchcock in particular, would do well to check out Marine Sniper by Charles Henderson.
Eric Ladnier of Hickson, Texas, asks if they're going to ever do an issue about POWs and MIAs or the families of POWs and MIAs, and they say yes. We'll be doing a major storyline about POWs in Vietnam, one that will blow your eyeballs out or whatever. Remember Ramnarain from issue 16? We'll look for him in the storyline immediately following the death of Joe Hallen, but be warned, when you see him, you may not like it. And then there's somebody uh, who asks what a thousand-yard stare is, and he says, Carlos, uh, Chris, Chris Betchel, Bechtel of West Coastville, Pennsylvania. He said, Chris, the thousand yard stare is a term for the burned out expression that some soldiers are said to have after experienced numerous horrors on the battlefield. It is the look of a man who's seen too much. They have a box here talking about how they actually had to go to a second printing on the nom number 52. Uh, because there were, it sold out so well, more than they expected, but it was definitely worth the extra printing. There's also a box saying, send a subscription to a soldier for substantial savings. If you want to give the gift of reading to any of our troops in the Middle East, it's 50% off on all titles. That's right. Any subscription you buy for an Operation Desert Shield soldier will cost you half the listed price. And they send that. So this definitely gives you an idea of what, time, what was going on in the world at the time. Nam notes this time around, chopper you out or fly you out in a helicopter chuck or charlie is victor charles Viet Cong. food stores or food supplies gunny is a gunnery sergeant e7 united states marine corps op is operation and there is a blurb for the next issue which is part two ads this month we have a tsr buck rogers space uh adventure game role-playing game that's advertised as a spectacular intergalactic battle uh, the same Gargoyles Quest Game Boy ad, basketball card ad, Silver Surfer. A lot of the same ads we had as last month. Oh, there's a Silver Surfer Nintendo game. Win a customized Silver Surfer jet ski. And he's riding a jet ski with a Silver Surfer on it. They were really trying to push the Silver Surfer Nintendo game, weren't they? The same Destiny of an Emperor from Capcom game. Twice the characters, three times the action. It's Double Dragon 3, The Sacred Stones. You're in the USA, it's all's well the dojo until Marion is kidnapped. They're always kidnapping women in these games. Japan, something mysterious is happening in the land of the rising sun. New characters, once defeated, your bitter enemies join your quest. China, it's a worldwide search as you search for Marion and the Sacred Stones. Italy, only your all-new martial arts moves can conquer the gladiators. Egypt, finally you confront the curse of the pharaohs. Bullpen bulletins this month is exactly the same as it was last time around. There's an East Coast Comics ad. Uh, ooh, our Three Musketeers adventures continue with number two in a series. While attempting to salvage a sunken nuclear sub 1,500 feet down the Mariana Trench, something strange happens. We've never had these readings so far down the trench, sir. Could be a seismic anomaly or a whale. It's rising, sir, and fast. Suddenly, whoosh. Sir, is this bait for some kind of trap? If it is, I'm biting. It's a big three musketeer of ours, of course, because where will because it's big on chocolate. Where will three musketeers turn up next? We'll have to see, right? Back page is for Castlevania Three: Dracula's Curse from Konami, and there's some screenshots on the bottom. But the main illustration is this kid who looks like he's getting a prostate exam or something. That is an awful, awful expression on his face, and he's surrounded by Simon Belmont, Dracula, and what looks like a pirate dude. 
Oh, God, it's so bad. <sighs> I do love old school video game ads, though. Um, anyway, I'm going to take a break right now. And when I come back, I'm going to have a uh, extra feature here. I'll be looking at the Bruce Springsteen song, Born in the USA. Stick her around. Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino created Black Canary in 1947. She debuted as a masked femme fatale that kind of skirted the law, but pretty quickly she evolved into a civic-minded crime fighter. She has mastered multiple martial arts disciplines in unarmed combat forms. Her canary cry, when properly focused, is powerful powerful enough to punch a hole through a wall. Black Canary has, in one form or another, been part of multiple incarnations of the Justice League, the Justice Society, and Birds of Prey. I freaking fell in love with Black Canary, and I'm proud to podcast about her adventures in comics and television. Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. There are many stories and songs about vets coming home from the Vietnam War, But I think if you ask the members of my generation, which is comprised of the children of those vets, the most famous song and the most probably misinterpreted is Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA.
listening to it, which is the title track from the album of the same name, it sounds like a patriotic anthem. However, the melody is ironic, and their lyrics tell the story of a guy who is sent to Vietnam and then comes back to his hometown to find, essentially, that he has nowhere to turn. The song has a pretty long history, from writing to release to reaction. Springsteen began writing it in 1981, and it was originally conceived as the theme to a Paul Schrader movie of the same name. The movie became the Michael J. Fox, Joan Jett film Light of Day. Springsteen then recorded a a version of the song for the Nebraska album, which is acoustic and has a much different tone. That version I just played was released in the Tracks box set in 1998, and simultaneously there was a book he released called Songs, 
And in it, he says, In 1981, director Paul Schrader sent me a script called Born in the USA, a film revolving around the lives of some fictional musicians in Cleveland. He wanted me to come up with some music for the film, but the script sat on my writing table until one day I was singing a new song I was writing called Vietnam. I looked over and sang off the top of Paul's cover page, I Was Born in the USA. I had cut the song for Nebraska, but didn't use it. Six months later, I cut it with the band, and that version became the title song for my next record. I later gave Paul a song called Light of Day, and the film was released under that title. The sound of, the, of Born in the USA was martial, modal, and straight ahead. The lyrics dealt with the problem Vietnam's vets faced when they came back home after fighting in, quote, the only war that America had ever lost. In order to understand the song's intent, you need to invest a certain amount of time and effort to absorb both the music and the words. But that's not the way a lot of people use pop music. For most, the music is primarily an emotional language. Whatever you've written lyrically always, almost always comes in second to whatever the listener is feeling. Should form follow lyrical content, I had two experiences that illustrate how this works in the real world. The first guy I played the finished version of Born in the USA for was Bobby Mueller, a veteran and then president of the Vietnam Veterans of America. He came into the studio and sat between two large speakers in front of the console. I turned up the volume. He sat there for a moment listening to the first couple of verses, then a big smile crossed his face. Also, for years after the release of the album at Halloween, I had little kids in red bandanas knocking at my door with their trick-or-treat bag saying, I was born in the USA. They were not particularly well-versed in the Had a Brother at K. San lyric. But they all had plenty of lung power when the chorus rolled around. I guess the same fate awaited Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land around the campfire, but that didn't make me feel any better. A songwriter writes to be understood. Is the way you choose to present your music its politics? Is the sound and form your song takes its content? Coming off Nebraska, I had just done it both ways. On one hand, I learned a lesson about how pop and pop images perceived. On the other hand, I wouldn't have made either of those records differently. Over the years, I've had an opportunity to reinterpret Born in the USA many times in concert, particularly on the Tom Joad tour. Uh, that was the tour in the mid-90s uh, for the Ghost of Tom Joad album, by the way. I had a version that could not be misconstrued, but those interpretations always stood in relief to the original and gained some of their new power from the audience's previous experience with the original version. On the album, Born in the USA was in its most powerful presentation. If I tried to undercut or change the music, I believe I would have had a record that might have been more easily understood, but not as good. Unlike Born to Run, which set the mark and feel for the other songs that would make up the album by the same name, Born in the USA more or less stood by itself. The album and song were both re released in 1984 while uh, Ronald Reagan was in the middle of his re-election campaign and made some comments in a campaign speech that that are actually kind of now infamous a little bit, or at least trivially infamous anyway, saying America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope so many young Americans admire uh, from New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. And helping you make those dreams come true is what this job of mine is all about. Uh, late night comedians pounced on this, and Walter Mondale tried to take Springsteen's subsequent rebuffing as Reagan as support for him, although Springsteen never really endorsed him. The boss also turned down several million dollars from Chrysler to use the song in a commercial. In a way, Reagan was actually right, though, but not probably in the way he intended. 
Homeless vets in the plight of America's working class needed a voice in the spotlight in the first half of the 1980s, and Springsteen was one of those who provided it. Despite its misinterpretation by many, Born in the USA did bring attention to the veterans' plight and was even featured at the end of the documentary Dear America Letters Home from Vietnam, which is an amazing piece, a film, and I've, I've mentioned it before, and I highly recommend watching. Uh, it, it's I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, but you can definitely get it off a DVD on from Netflix. I've personally always liked this song. I'll admit that when I was seven or eight years old, I was like probably like one of those kids that Springsteen talks about at Halloween, knowing all the lyrics, thought it was like, you know, yay, America. But as I got older and I stood, understood what the song was about, I began to appreciate it for what it really meant. And as good as the acoustic version on tracks is, there is some real power in that original version. The fact that it drips with just both irony and frustration at the same time makes it all the more powerful. And I wanted to at least, that's why I wanted to give it this small spotlight uh, on this episode. And that'll do it. Uh, I will be back in two weeks uh, with the last episode before I take an extended break for the Christmas and New Year holiday. I'm going to look at part two of The Death of Joe Hallen, and I'm going to look at a Christmas story of an 80s television show that centers around Vietnam. So until then, thanks for listening, and take care. And leaving would be the last thing on my mind If I could turn back the hand of time You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Cause for your the other half, that makes my life complete. If I had one more chance, we'd have a love so sweet. And leaving would be the last thing on my mind. If I could turn back the hand.